Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 15. Chaos is a Ladder. Last episode, Gaius Julius Caesar was effectively king of Rome. Winning his civil war, his enemies dead or pardoned, he was made dictator for life, rendering the senate and elected magistrates useless. While Caesar gained the dictatorship through violent civil war, he was a peaceful dictator who did not violently punish his enemies like Sulla did. Caesar used his unlimited power to try and fix the hundreds of problems plaguing the Republic. However, Caesar's unlimited authority over the Republic was not what the Republic was supposed to be. Led by Marcus Junius Brutus and Gaius Cassius Longinus, about 60 other senators would join a conspiracy to assassinate the dictator who would never give up his power. Caesar was called to a senate meeting and the assassins struck, stabbing him 23 times. Hundreds of senators watched on. Then, the very surprised senators fled. No one knew what violence was to follow. Mark Antony, Caesar's friend and co-consul for the year, had good reason the assassins were after him next, as did Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, who was Caesar's current number two in the dictatorship. Even Cicero, who the assassins called upon to help restore the Republic, fled. He had no idea of this conspiracy and worried, just like everyone else, if he was on the assassins list. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode is, what would Roman politicians do in the wake of Caesar's death? You can actually really start making some guesses right now if you want. As a content warning, there is mention of suicide this episode. While senators ignorant to the conspiracy didn't know it, Caesar was to be the only casualty of the day. One of the conspiracy's leaders, Marcus Junius Brutus, insisted on it. But all the other senators fleeing in terror was not what the conspirators hoped for. Nonetheless, they still assumed the Roman people would be appreciative they liberated them from a tyrant. The conspirators proudly stepped out of Pompey's theater, covered in Caesar's blood. They announced to Rome, Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Yet their speech of killing the dictator for the good of the Republic and restoring liberty did not rouse the crowd to celebrate as they wanted. Nor did the crowd turn on them and start attacking them for killing the benevolent Caesar. Rome was stunned and waited for what was to come. The streets became silent as the populace retreated into their homes, preparing for what came next. Most Romans had the uneasy but familiar feeling in their stomachs. Civil war would return. As the reality of the situation began to hit, politicians began making their moves. Let the games begin! Cleopatra had been in Rome during this time. She lingered in the aftermath, feeling safe that no one would come after her despite her relationship with Caesar. With Caesar dead, her throne became a lot less secure, and she wanted to see how the situation would develop. If it came to civil war, she would have to pick the winning side to keep her throne. However, she left in mid-April to make sure Egyptian nobles didn't get any ideas of overthrowing her. Eventually, Cicero realized it was only Julius Caesar who was to die, and the assassins weren't coming for him. Cicero left his home to congratulate the assassins on their righteous action. Spectacular news! Antony felt safe enough to meet with the loyal Caesarians who didn't betray Caesar. While Antony was Caesar's co-consul, Lepidus was the current master of horse, the right-hand man in Caesar's dictatorship. 
As Caesar's number two, Marcus Aemilius Lepidus controlled the only legion in Italy who called the soldiers toward Rome. Antony convinced Lepidus to keep a level head and not let them loose on the conspirators. The legion would be at least able to defend the Caesareans if there was further violence, but Antony didn't want to be seen as the aggressors and whatever came next. With the dictator dead, Lepidus didn't technically have legal authority to do this, but his men came all the same. This opened up an interesting legal question that Caesar's friends and enemies had to decide. How much of what Caesar did was legal? As consul, Antony had the authority to summon the shaken senate and debate this. If Caesar was a tyrant, as the conspirators made him out to be, then all of his actions should have been illegal. Yet Caesar had also done a lot of good for Rome, and for the senators, even the conspirators, at this debate. Many of the men who killed Caesar had benefited in some way from promotions by Caesar. Its leaders, Brutus and Cassius, were currently praetors, who were supposed to become governors at the end of the year. Former Caesarians Decimus Brutus and Trebonius were former consuls under the dictatorship. So this begs the question, if Caesar was an unjust tyrant, were the positions and powers that Caesarians and conspirators currently held illegitimate? On the other hand, if Caesar was not a tyrant and his actions were legitimate, then the assassins just murdered a Roman politician in broad daylight and had to be punished. Compromise would win the day, led by Antony and Cicero. All of Caesar's laws and advancements were kept, but the conspirators would not be charged with murder. A lot of it is subtle. None of it is illegal. This was, of course, illogical, but kept an uneasy peace and averted civil war. That is the most illogical attitude. At the present, Lepidus kept his legions near Rome. While there was no other military force to challenge him, it would have been unwise to try and storm the city. Caesar's replacement consul was Publius Cornelius Dolabella. He was to take over when Caesar left for his wars, but took over now at the dictator's death. While two Caesarians held the consulship, Antony and Dolabella were fierce rivals. Still, everyone was walking on eggshells in the wake of the assassination, not wanting to provoke another civil war, but grab power where they could. It wasn't like Antony, Dolabella, or Lepidus could automatically become Gaius Julius Caesar. Caesar's dominance was earned through decades of building relationships with loyal political subordinates and loyal military subordinates. Caesar's subordinates had followed Caesar because he rewarded their loyalty, but this loyalty was to Caesar, and they wouldn't necessarily rally to another man. Even the common people's love for Caesar and all he had given them was built up over decades and wouldn't automatically trickle down to his underlings. It was also decided by the Senate that Caesar would have a public funeral. While Cassius was initially against this, Brutus convinced him to allow it. Five days after the Ides of March, a large crowd gathered to watch the ceremony and cremation. Mark Antony led the ceremony. Roman funerals could always be used as a stage for politics. Caesar's blood-stained toga was on full display as Antony read out all of Caesar's honors and all the good he had done for the Republic. Antony showed the tears of the cloak where the assassin's blades had plunged into the man. Look at the mask of my boy. Antony read Caesar's will that Caesar's private gardens were being given to the people as public parks and every citizen would receive 300 sesterces. Hearing about what Caesar willed them and to see how he died, the people mourned the death of their generous dictator. 
They were also very upset to learn that Decimus Brutus, one of the assassins, was to receive a large sum of Caesar's estate. Antony displayed a wax model of Caesar's body, which was rotated to show the 23 wounds he sustained. Someone shouted an old quote from a play, to think that I saved those men so that they could destroy me. The conspirators had made a serious miscalculation in letting Antony plan this very political funeral. I've made a huge mistake. Antony turned a crowd of mourners into a riot. The assassins murdered the great and generous dictator, despite Caesar having done so much for them, even sparing their lives when some were his enemies. The mob built up a pyre, and it was lit. In the frenzy, Caesar's friend Cinna was killed because he was mistaken for Cinna the conspirator. Now the assassins feared for their lives. Antony had used the funeral to turn the Roman people against the liberators of the Republic. They never went out in public, and within a month, all conspirators had fled the city out into the provinces. Out there they were safer, leaving Antony the clearly dominant figure in Rome. Antony used the rest of his year as consul to build strength. He started pushing for laws that Caesar apparently wanted, and the Senate voted them through. However, many, like Cicero, speculated these were laws of Antony's own invention, and he was abusing the beloved dictator's name to get them passed. Antony gained more loyal followers and wealth in reward for helping different factions of people. He became closer to Lepidus by engaging his daughter to Lepidus' son, even though they are both too young to be married yet. With Caesar dead, the position of Pontifex Maximus, Rome's chief priest, was open. Antony ensured Lepidus would have it. For as much strength as Antony was gathering, he was nowhere close to Caesar's level of auctoritas and authority, nor did he automatically win over the hearts and minds of Rome. Cicero was particularly against Antony, who, just like Caesar, seemed to be making decisions on his own, rubber-stamping decisions by saying Caesar wanted them to pass and the Senate would do so. Cicero wrote a speech called the First Philippics, and a pamphlet called the Second Philippics, which tore apart Antony's character and career. Cicero never forgot how Antony flagrantly strut his power when Caesar was alive and was concerned. Antony might become an even worse dictator than Caesar if he stayed in power. Caesarians were also starting to turn on Antony. Besides the funeral, Antony, who was apparently their leader, did nothing to punish the men who murdered Caesar. About a month after Caesar was assassinated, Caesar's great-nephew Gaius Octavius arrived in Rome. The young man was 18 years old and was the principal heir of Caesar's will, while Antony, his longtime subordinate, was willed nothing by Caesar. Ah! It should have been me, not him! Indeed, the whole of Caesar's will stated that Octavius was to inherit three-fourths of Caesar's vast fortune and be adopted as Julius Caesar's son. While it's a hard number not readily found, the 18-year-old Octavius, having inherited Julius Caesar's fortune, made him the richest man in the Republic, and if not, very close to it. I'm rich. Octavius accepted the will, and he became Caesar's son. Gaius Octavius was no more. His new name was Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. His contemporaries would have called him Caesar after his adoptive father, but today modern historians call him Octavian, so he isn't confused with Julius Caesar. Octavius before he was Caesar's son, 
Octavian, as Caesar's son. Antony tried to ignore the boy demanding his fortune, but Octavian persisted in his efforts to make a name for himself. Some men began to support Caesar's son, loaning him money and recruiting veterans for him. They bet that one day when Octavian had his fortune, he would be able to pay them back. Additionally, the 18-year-old Octavian tried to enact Caesar's will. Even if he didn't yet have Caesar's fortune, Octavian borrowed money and sold his own property to give the Roman people 300 sesterces as Caesar had promised in his will. He was also soon presiding over Caesar's funeral games for the people, which no one tried to stop. A comet appeared over the theater performances and gladiator fights. While normally taken as a bad sign, Octavian proclaimed it was a sign that his father was ascending into the heavens as a god, and so in death, Caesar officially became a Roman god. As the year wore on, Rome's consuls and praetors were anticipating their governorships and preparing the armies they would gain for war. The conspirator Decimus Brutus would be governor of Cisalpine Gaul, but Antony got the Senate to vote him out. Antony was supposed to be the governor of Macedon, but it was voted that he would replace Decimus in Cisalpine Gaul. Antony got to transfer his Macedonian legions to Cisalpine Gaul. Antony left Rome to start moving these legions from Macedon up into Italy, up north to Cisalpine Gaul, where he would concentrate power and have a five-year command. His brother Gaius Antonius was going to be the new governor of Macedon and raise fresh legions for his brother Antony. Caesarian's Dolabella was going to be governor of Syria, and Lepidus, governor of Transalpine Gaul and nearer Spain, giving them both armies and power. In Italy itself, Octavian was raising his own, small, illegal private army, promising to pay them well, just as Pompey Magnus once did when he joined Sola. On the high seas, Pompey's youngest son, Sextus Pompey, who had survived defeat in Spain, now controlled a rogue naval squadron. As stated in the early days of this series, well-paid armies being loyal to a politician over the Republic was a major reason the Republic fell. At this point in the Republic, a politician's only real security was having a well-paid, loyal army. Politicians without any army had to pick the right side or face the consequences. As we see now, there's lots of militaries of dubious alliances and interests starting to mobilize. Going out to veteran settlements himself, 3,000 of Caesar's veterans rallied behind Octavian, the son of Caesar, and the handsome sum he promised them. While Antony was out of Rome, coordinating the transport of his Macedonian legions, Octavian marched his private army on Rome. He tried to garner Cicero and other senators' support so he could legally enter the city as a stabilizing force that would defend the Republic. Cicero and other senators didn't consent, judging it for an overconfident show of force, but Octavian illegally marched in anyways. Wait. While illegal, Octavian didn't violently execute anyone like previous marches on Rome, as he wanted to be seen as a legitimate, peaceful leader in the Republic. He allied with a tribune who was calling out Mark Antony, who was currently out of Rome with his Macedonian troops. Octavian publicly said he wanted to live up to Caesar's legacy and denounced Antony, who was trying to obstruct him as he still hadn't received Caesar's fortune. Octavian had tried to puff out his chest to show his strength to the Republic and attract the people's love, but Octavian mostly angered his own soldiers. Caesar's veterans, who knew Antony as an ally, wanted justice on Caesar's assassins, not to see Antony torn down. 
Indeed, Octavian marching on Rome was a miscalculation from a headstrong 19-year-old boy. Antony was returning to Rome with a larger, better equipped, and legal legions. Octavian's position was becoming worse and worse, and some of Caesar's veterans were deserting him, and the Roman public did not rally to him. Discouraged, Octavian departed from Rome to raise more men. With a bigger army, perhaps more people would be attracted to the safety he could provide. Antony's Macedonian legions had landed in Italy. There were four legions raised to fight the Parthians, and their officers were personally promoted by Caesar. All had been eager for war with the generous Caesar and plundering the riches of the East with him. Now, rather than conquering the East with their great general, they were preparing for a civil war under Antony, a man few had ever met who had no real significant victory of his own and no reputation of generosity and had gone months without avenging Caesar's death. They were very susceptible to Octavian's recruiters, who promised them 20 years pay for their loyalty. Many were incentivized to leave Antony for Caesar's more generous son. Two legions left for Octavian, and Antony was only able to keep his other two by matching Octavian's price. The year was over, and Antony departed for Cisalpine Gaul. He was now definitely against the young Octavian, whose illegal army had just gotten a lot more dangerous and matched the size of Antony's forces. Unfortunately for Antony, a lot was coalescing against him that threatened to bring him ruin. When the Senate voted to replace Decimus with Antony, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think Decimus didn't want to give up his governorship. Decimus hunkered down in the city of Mutina. Antony began to blockade the city, but made no direct assaults. Antony's attack on Decimus gave Cicero the opportunity to make Antony an outlaw. Cicero unleashed his third Philippics, further casting down Antony, who is trying to use his illegal army to take Cisalpine Gaul from its rightful governor, Decimus. Cicero was now supporting Octavian, whose illegal army was the lesser of Antony's more deliberate evil. In Cicero's mind, Antony had to be cast down. He had already shown a penchant for abusing power in Caesar's life and after his death, and now was the opportunity to take him down. Yet the Senate still did not rally against Antony as he had hoped. While they didn't love Decimus, many still had some connection to Antony. Rather than outlaw him, they sent three senators to negotiate with Antony so the situation wouldn't further escalate. Peace was falling apart in other provinces as well. On his way to his province of Syria, Dolabella visited his friend, the conspirator Trebanius, in Asia. Dolabella murdered Trebanius and took control of the Asian province. With no one in Syria, the conspirator Cassius seized control of that province. Both of them started plundering their new territories and seizing wealth. While Macedon was supposed to be governed by Antony's brother Gaius Antonius, the conspirator Marcus Junius Brutus overthrew him, making Antonius a prisoner, and took control of the province. Now the two leading assassins, Cassius and Brutus, had their own armies for the Republic to contend with. Rome's negotiations with Antony had finished. Antony said he would give up one of the Gallic provinces he was entitled to, so long as he kept the other, and command of his six legions for five years. In addition, he demanded that Brutus and Cassius give up their legions before those five years. He also asked the Republic's treasury to pay his soldiers as much as Octavian was paying his private army, so his soldiers didn't keep leaving him. The Senate found Antony's terms way too steep and chose Decimus as the rightful governor over Antony. 
Cicero was delighted that Antony demanded too much and turned the Senate against him. But this <laughs> does put a smile on my face. Cicero got more senators to accept the young Octavian and his army, who could now be used to end Antony. Octavian had illegally raised his army, but was now given Imperium, legal authority, to crush Antony. The new consuls for this year also prepared for war. They were both Caesareans and raised four inexperienced legions. Octavian, the consuls, and their perfectly legal armies marched north to save one of Caesar's assassins from Antony. Surely, Octavian was eager to bloody the arrogant consul who tried to refuse him. From Cicero's perspective, it was a brilliant strategy. Octavian was a very useful pawn for him. The teenager made a fool of himself marching on Rome and was clearly in over his head. But giving Octavian legal authority would stroke his ego and neutralize Antony. When Octavian returned, it would not be difficult to politically outplay the teenager and make him impotent in politics. In Cicero's words, we must praise the young man, reward him, and discard him. Roman armies clashed in civil war. Antony's troops against the combined armies of Octavian and the consuls. Antony's men fought hard, but ultimately, they were defeated. Those who survived fled with Antony. Octavian would be the biggest winner from this battle. His allied consuls were killed in the fighting, leaving Octavian in charge of all the forces they sent. A surprise, to be sure, but a welcome one. In Rome, Antony was declared a public enemy. He's a, he's a public enemy. I really think he is. <laughs> yeah. And there were 50 days of Thanksgiving to celebrate his first defeat. However, all was not well. The Senate appointed Decimus as the supreme commander in Gaul, meaning he would take control of Octavian's army. Cicero's plan to discard Octavian was working. The Senate also approved that Brutus was the rightful governor of Macedon and Cassius, the rightful governor of Syria, when they both had illegally seized those provinces. Caesar's veterans who served Octavian were none too pleased at the prospect of serving under the assassin Decimus. They refused to follow the assassin's orders to hunt down the retreating Antony. This gave Antony time to escape any pursuit. He led his surviving men to Lepidus in Transalpine Gaul. Antony brought with him his survivors, as well as three legions he had recruited from Caesar's veterans that Octavian hadn't gotten to first. Antony camped his men near Lepidus, and the soldiers fraternized with each other. Lepidus's army was soon leaving him to join Antony, which compelled Lepidus to join Antony himself. A little later, the other Spanish governor would join Antony, giving him 19 legions at his disposal. Well, that was a freebie. Antony had turned a defeat into victory. Octavian at this point had about eight loyal legions who refused to recognize Decimus as their commander. Octavian demanded that he be made a consul since both were killed in the battle against Antony. The Senate refused. While the rules about magistrates have been bent a lot in recent years, a consul was supposed to be 42 and Octavian wasn't even 20. Octavian marched south across the Rubicon toward Rome. Go, dice roll! Only one legion was left to protect Rome, so the Senate called three legions from Africa to join the defense. When Octavian camped outside the city, all four of Rome's legions defected to him. Cicero's strategy had seriously backfired. I've made a huge mistake. Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus wasn't a pawn in Cicero's game, but as great a threat as Antony. I am the danger. With 12 legions barreling down at them, the Senate made the 19-year-old a consul. 
As consul, Octavian made sure the Roman treasury paid his loyal soldiers their due. Octavian also revoked Antony's status as public enemy and instead named conspirators like Brutus and Cassius as public enemies instead. He's a, he's a public enemy. <laughs> I really think he is. Yeah. As well as the rogue, Sextus Pompey, at sea. Consul Octavian and his massive army then marched north to meet with Antony and Lepidus. Decimus fled the scene. Whatever was going to happen, none of these Caesareans liked him. Decimus managed to get himself captured and killed by a Gallic tribe. The massive armies of Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian did not end up fighting each other. The soldiers were far too brotherly to make war on one another, and besides, they all had a common enemy. After three days of meetings, realizing they had similar common interests, Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian came to a conclusion. Hey, so listen, I was thinking that it might be a good idea that you and I formed an alliance. You and I an alliance to form the Board of Three to restore the state, or as we call it, the Second Triumvirate. It's like poetry, so if they rhyme. While the First Triumvirate of Caesar, Pompey Magnus, and Crassus was informal, where they called in favors for each other to get what they wanted, this Second Triumvirate was far different. Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian could make laws without consulting the Senate. Essentially, they were three united dictators who controlled 40 legions between them and their allies. Manipulating the popular will like the Gracchi, the Senate did not vote these men these insane powers, but the Roman people did. Two loyal Caesarians and Caesar's son with a massive army could at the very least keep them safe. For the true Caesar stands, they could also avenge Caesar's death. The second triumvirate was to have power over the Republic for five years. The alliance was strengthened with marriages, and Octavian would be wed to Antony's young stepdaughter, though it would be a few years before they could consummate the marriage. Immediately, their massive combined army had to be given money to keep them loyal, but they didn't have all the money to pay such an army. Without cash on hand to pay them, the obvious answer was to take wealth from the wealthy. Some of Caesar's assassins were men he had forgiven. Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian would not make the mistake of showing mercy. It is happening again. The worst of civil wars had returned. The second triumvirate reinstated deathless and prescriptions. Yes, the old ways are still best. Time is a flat circle. It's like poetry, so if they rhyme. The deathless went out. The wealth of those who were killed was seized by the triumvirs. To be prescribed, you didn't even have to have wronged the triumvirs. You could have been too wealthy and not well-connected enough to them. Sometimes, even that wasn't enough. Antony's uncle, Lepidus's brother, and Octavian's family friend all made it on the deathless, although it was only Octavian's relation who was killed. Prescribed Romans fled in terror, and once again, friends killed friends and family turned on family, to get their due reward. Anyone who helped a prescribed man could be prescribed themselves. Some were lucky enough to make it to the coast, where the outlaw Sextus Pompey picked them up with his pirate navy. 
However, perhaps 2,000 Romans were killed by Antony, Lepidus, and Octavian. Those who escaped with their lives lost all their wealth in Rome. Marcus Tullius Cicero's hand and head were nailed out in public for all to see. The hand and mouth of the great orator that railed against Antony and the destruction he would bring upon the Republic would write and speak no more. But this <laughs> does put a smile on my face. Sources differ on the attitudes of the triumvirs at this time. Some have Antony and his wife playing with Cicero's corpse. Some have Octavian acting more moderately in the killing, while others record the young man reveled in it, eagerly signing men to their deaths. Antony and Octavian were accused of prescribing a man just to seize his fancy vases to decorate their homes. It was rumored Antony's wife accepted bribes to kill or pardon men, which Antony would enforce, and that Antony would sleep with wives who wanted to save her husband's life. The Romans surely hated their new overlords, but they were scared into submission. It was clearly better to live and comply than be killed, just as Caesar had demonstrated to the Gauls. The bloodbath of the Triumvirate was only just beginning. It would soon be time for civil war in the East against Brutus and Cassius. For their part, Brutus and Cassius were warlords just as much as the Second Triumvirate who raised armies loyal to their coin. They too prepared for war, building their power in the East. Cassius went to war with the Caesarian Dolabella, who committed suicide as Cassius besieged him. Brutus executed Gaius Antonius, Antony's imprisoned brother, for the death of his cousin Decimus Brutus. They both squeezed the eastern provinces to build an army to be able to pay for their loyalty. Killing Caesar to save the Republic had utterly failed. Despite the fact that his unlimited dictatorship was the opposite of what the Republic was supposed to be, his dictatorship finally brought peace, stability, and established order in Rome. Upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. In the wake of Caesar's assassination, while for a time there was an uneasy peace, the situation quickly unraveled. Civil war had returned, and the dreaded prescriptions returned. Now, both sides formed up for more war and more bloodshed. As written by Shakespeare in what he imagined Mark Antony said as he looked over Julius Caesar's corpse, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode was, what would Roman politicians do in the wake of Caesar's death? Go ahead and pause if you'd like to reflect on your answer. Roman politicians did what they always did. They played to their own interests, and we see a series of made and broken alliances this episode. Let's replay this series of events that follow Antony, Cicero, and Octavian. Antony, as consul, had control of Rome after Caesar's death. But Antony had shown himself an overgrown frat boy, and Cicero didn't want Antony in power, so wrote the Philippics to tear him down. Still, the Senate generally favored Antony for the moment. Octavian arrived on the scene and didn't like Antony, who was holding back the fortune he was due from Caesar's will. Cicero's impression of Octavian was that he was an overconfident teenager, but could be a useful tool to take Antony down. With Cicero's help and the Senate turning against Antony, Octavian was given the Imperium and command to take Antony down. Octavian battled and defeated Antony, and then Octavian marched on Rome, threatening violence and demanded to be made consul, which set him against Cicero. 
Then, Octavian made an alliance with Antony, and they formed the second triumvirate with Lepidus. Octavian and Antony used the prescriptions to kill Cicero. Well, well, well. How the turntables... The point of this is that... Chaos is a ladder. Julius Caesar's iron grip on the Republic was vaporized, leaving Roman politicians the opportunity to grab onto as much power as they could and climb up the proverbial ladder. To climb higher, they needed armies, they needed allies, and they needed to tear their enemies down. In the chaos, every man played to his own interest. Antony's climb was tumultuous, experiencing high highs and low lows, but ultimately became a triumvir. The young Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus was on a vicious rise. Adopted by Julius Caesar, people were attracted to his name. He illegally raised a private army and forced his way in to Roman politics. At 19, he was Rome's youngest consul in history, and at 20, he was signing men to their deaths. No one was safe in the chaos. The Novus Homo, and Rome's greatest orator Cicero himself, was prescribed. Started from the bottom, now we're here. The chaos extended into the east as well, where Brutus and Cassius illegally seized power, where they hoped to defeat the second triumvirate and tear them down. This civil war was going to be just like all the others. It wasn't about living up to some ideal of a democratic republic. It was about eliminating those who stood between you and power in a broken political system. Next episode, we see the civil war and the aftermath of the Liberators and the Triumvirs. You can follow the show on Twitter at D-O-T-R-R-Pod for Roman history memes, educational summaries of episodes, and show updates. So go ahead and give the show a follow if you're looking for a fun time at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter. Hello, listeners. Death of the Roman Republic is ending soon. The series will conclude at Chapter 20 on October 27th, 2020. However, the podcast feed won't be inactive, and I have a slew of one-off episodes I plan to release for the rest of 2020 and 2021. The first of these one-off episodes will be a Q&A. You can submit questions about producing the show, about Roman history, about myself, or about anything else you can think of. I have no idea how long this episode might be, but I'll try to answer as many appropriate questions as possible. You can tweet Q&A questions at the show at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter, or email the show at dotrrpod at gmail.com, and I'll try to include your question and credit you with asking if you would like. So tweet or email the show if you have any questions for me, and I'll try my best to answer them. The Q&A episode will drop roughly around Halloween 2020, maybe the day before, maybe the day after. We'll see. A lot is up in the air in the world right now. Stay safe and have a lovely rest of your day. Please consider checking out Death of the Roman Republic podcast on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic podcast. Re-listen to favorite clips and share with friends and help them discover the show. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.